Welcome to Right Rising, a podcast from the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. I'm your host, Augusta DeLomo. Today, I'm joined by Max Crater, a doctoral candidate at the Hannah Arendt Institute for Totalitarianism Studies at TU Dresden. He's here with us today to talk through some preliminary results from a report from the Counter-Extremism Project on the financing and funding of the extreme right. Max, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me here. So, Max, let's start off with the big question. What sources and strategies of funding and financing can the extreme right draw on? And I know you particularly work in a sort of German, but also transnational context. Yeah, thanks for the question. The financing of the violence-oriented extreme right organizations and actors in Germany and also transnationally is diverse. Um, The spectrum of financial strategy ranges from minimal incomes from blood donations to mail-order business and international music festivals, some of which are said to have generated uh, sales in the millions and profits in the hundreds of thousand euros. Financing, respectively, the funding options can be subdivided in six larger strategy pillars. The first strategy pillar relies on the self-financing from income, from non-seen or movement-related employment, as well as donations by adherents. The second pillar encompasses the organization of concerts and music festivals with white power music groups. The events range from small-scale events with 50 attendees up to large festivals with 6,000. The third pillar is closely linked to the music business as well. Uh, Running music labels, retail shops or mail-order businesses uh, where movement entrepreneurs sell everything an extreme-right activist needs to equip one's own extreme-right live world. The fourth one uh, is the organization of uh, martial arts events. Uh, It's nearly the same way the white power music business is run. The fifth one is the real estate business, which is closely linked um, to those uh, pillars because um, event business uh, legally and specially secured properties enable sustainable value creation and make it easier to hold these events. Last but not least, The sixth and last pillar is organized crime, such as drug trafficking or prostitution, even though it contradicts the ideology. Formerly in Germany, it was also party funding, but uh, this has declined. Mm. Thanks for that, Max. And I'll say from my research as a historian, I've heard of white power groups using all of these different methods, whether it's organized crime or music. But I'd like for you to talk a little bit about which financial sources you would say from this report and your own research are the most reliable and the most profitable? Uh, the most profitable sources are big white power music festivals declared and registered under the Fagenal and Regional Assembly Act. In short, by not declaring it a commercial event, uh, they can declare entrance fees as donations, so in many cases they are not taxed. But as this approach um, is legally challengeable, the mail order business is the most stable and secure source of money. So overall, it's uh, the white power music business that keeps the extreme movement capable of acting. Mm. And do different groups sort of have particular specialities? Do some organizations really just rely on, for instance, white power music or some very involved in organized crime? Or would you say that these groups often pull from multiple funding sources? Yes, they often um, have multiple sources of funding, um, but it's often uh, white power music that um, forms the core of this business, except for uh, the one or another organizations. Uh, for example, as the Turonen uh, recently in Thuringia, their uh, core business was um, 
drug trafficking and prostitution close to where uh, they held white power music events. So it sounds like from what you're saying that a lot of these funding sources, whether directly or indirectly, really revolve around the white power music scene. And I'll say that my experience as a U.S. researcher of the far right, that white power music, particularly in the 80s, was a, was a huge element of the sort of Aryan right. And I really like you to talk about why is this such a popular source? It's something that I think a lot of us anecdotally know, but what is it about the white power music scene that is so central to their fundraising and financing efforts? White power music is a popular source because it combines many useful functions for the white power music scene and uh, the extreme right movement as a whole, apart from the financial aspect. Uh, for example, uh, the music, uh, the scene creates a feeling of belonging, helps to build networks in and around the scene. Plus, it helps to spread propaganda in other ways parties and social movements are able to. Furthermore, it also helps to provide social and political um, affirmation and it strengthens the ties between the actors. Um, it's a really useful source to, um, yeah, to generate. And would you say, Max, that there's... How many of these groups are we talking about in terms of like bands and participants? When you were conducting this study, what kind of numbers are we talking about? Just to give us a little bit of perspective about how big these this music scene actually is. Uh, the number of bands um, in Germany varies a lot. Um, in in the early nineties, um, it uh, there were only twenty to thirty bands, and uh, when it peaked in the mid 2000s there were around 180 190 bands and the organizations it's mainly uh, blood and honor hammerskins uh combinating and also smaller so-called brotherhoods uh, they are like acting like motorcycle gangs and for these for these groups is there i know the stereotype of what the sort of white power music sounds like is that an accurate you know sort of a very um hard rock vibe or is there genre differential within white power music about the kinds of music that you would maybe hear at these white power music festivals or events yes i think the stereotype uh, still the the white power music scene still consists of about 70 to 80 percent of classic white power music bands just like uh screwdriver uh lancer or um more of this type but there's also a differentiation between hardcore, black metal, and also rap, but um, less than 30%. And I think 10% hardcore, 10% black metal, and the rest is really minimal. And so moving away from the bands itself, could you talk about the sort of business and the, and the central actors and the central business areas that are really providing the, the financial backbone for these white power music groups. Yeah. The structure of the white power music is dominated by a movement entrepreneur who entirely live politically, socially, and economically off by and for the scene uh, and the movements. They're often involved since years or even decades and thereby have a lot of professional knowledge and they're often charismatic leaders. Um, but they are 
often also linked to larger organizations like Blood and Honor, Combat 18 and the Hammerskins because they give them uh, the credibility and the, 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 back, the background they need. So, Max, could you walk us through the structure a little bit of what this concert business looks like. So what would a, what would a typical event or what typical types of events do these white power groups and these, these business organizations that back them, what do they put on? What do they look like? I found out that there are mainly four types of concerts. Um, the smaller ones with up to 50 uh, visitors, um, mostly acoustic um, singer songwriter evenings an entrance fee for about 5 to 10 euros. Then there's the smaller events with up to 120, 150 people, mostly organized uh, in, conspiracy, in conspiracy. Same counts for the, the large events with 200 to 250 people. And the last type, and it's the most important one, uh, are bigger festivals uh, with 500 to 6,000 visitors because they generate the money. And Max, you mentioned one of the impetuses to put on these concerts is it creates these feelings of solidarity amongst the attendees, which in many cases is not different than large-scale music festivals that regular people go to. So could you talk a little bit about who is going to these events and what are the kinds of emotions, feelings, what solidarity does it elicit for the people that attend these white power music festivals while they're there? And how do these networks really perpetuate in these spaces? The typical visitor of a white power music festival is between 25 and 55, but uh, it's, he's getting older and he's in most cases male, not female. And he's going there with his friends uh, or his comrades. He's going there because um, he wants to experience, as you said, the same feelings uh, as the music as on a music festival, experiencing a weekend among comrades, and especially the during the concerts, um, there's a special kind of atmosphere because they are organized in conspiracy. And you don't have access um, if you don't know the people in the scene or in the movement. That's that's really interesting that it is a closed network in some spaces of people who have access to these kinds of events. I think my assumption would have been that they were public, but I guess thinking about this as an enclosed space also reifies that really personal, as you said, weekend with the comrades, that it's only the people that are part of that group that are really going to be participating. Yeah, if it's some some of the events are um, public, but it's mostly for the festivals. But the smaller events, especially when you have groups from abroad, for example, Australia, US, um, is a most mostly closed events because they really want to be sure that uh, no spies uh, are present. Mm. And are these music festivals becoming more global and more transnational? One of the big trends that a lot of us have noted at CAR is just the globalization of the far right. So I know that the music industry is quite a global business now with streaming and concerts as big money-making enterprises for these international groups. But are the white power music scenes becoming more globalized as well? Yes, Definitely. For example, a few um, years or decades ago, you could not have imagined um, a white power music festival with bands from five or six countries. Um, 
a maximum of one or two bands from abroad um, was a realistic scenario. But nowadays it's no problem and it's really appreciated by the visitors because uh, especially the bands from Australia, US or UK um, did not play live for many years in Germany. If we turn to the backbone of what is supporting this white power music industry. You mentioned a little bit at the beginning, record labels and mail order businesses. Do these kinds of different white power revenue streams intersect with the concert business and the extreme right movement? Yes, definitely. In many cases, uh, concert organizers um, are also movement entrepreneurs that um, organize concerts. Um, They are linked with parties, for example, the NPD, the National Democratic Party, or other smaller extreme right parties. So uh, the links to the movement and to the scene are very, very close. And Max, I wanted to ask you, just as we're you know, wrapping up, how should we think about countermeasures for this kind of far-right financing? We've had a few people on the podcast talking about deplatforming and also particularly countering the ability of extreme far-right groups' fundraising ability online. But it's interesting that as a concert business, this is a whole different ballgame of what it would look like to actually counter this kind of fundraising. So what countermeasures have you seen to be effective or which sort of new avenues are we considering to kind of cut off these revenue streams? Yeah, that's quite a diff- difficult question because it always depends on uh, which kind of concert um, you're talking about. But in general, there's the, the legal, the civic, and the administrative approach. I would definitely uh, prefer a combination of the legal and the civic approach to combat them, the tools we already have because the administrative approach um, is normally used to to fight organized crime and it's not the way you should counter um, concerts or events like this but stay on the the legal or the civic path and you will get them in the long in the long run if you need to get them uh, in the short run the administrative approach definitely works but it's critical to, to use it. And for our listeners who may not be as familiar with these three approaches, what exactly is the legal, the civic, and the administrative approach? The legal approach is basically um, the, the, the criminal, uh, using the criminal codes. If they violate the rules or, uh, or the laws of this code, they can be brought to court and the event is interrupted um, or even dissolved. The civic approach uh, includes uh, measures uh, such as uh, demonstration um, and providing knowledge via science, while the administrative approach um, includes checks for how clean uh, is the bar or uh, did they pay their uh, taxes um, just in time. Uh, such things um, go with the administrative approach. That makes a lot of sense, Max. And I think one of the really interesting elements about the civic approach is I think it also dovetails with a lot of the really interesting work coming out, particularly in the U.S., about how to prevent radicalization of younger people. And I imagine that the music, white power music, is a way that sort of younger 
younger people might get into white supremacist or extreme right movements by listening to and consuming this type of music. So the civic approach to me seems to offer ways for us to think about how should we actually combat this kind of music activism in our own personal spaces, whether it's within our communities or within families. I think um, white poem music can be a factor in the process of radicalization, but especially in Germany, um, the hypothesis of the uh, gateway drug was discussed, but it's not, um, it was more a reproduction of the narrative of the extreme right. So if you listen to music, uh, you're becoming uh, an extreme right activist. But if you do not think that way politically, um, it's not that problematic. Um, but it's definitely or should definitely be part um, of uh, prevention programs um, to, 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 have an, to have a closer look at the, these white power music bands and especially those in the gray zone um, who are not obviously political, political, but uh, who are transporting a similar message. Awesome. Well, Max, thank you so much for being here and for joining us on the podcast. For our listeners who maybe want to hear more about this research or read more from you, where can they find out more about you or even read the por report once it's publicly available? Uh, the report will be available uh, in German and English via CEP uh, on their homepage. Uh, and my publications uh, are listed, listed on my profile at the um, website of the Hannah Arendt Institute. So and everybody is free to contact me if you want to read something. I will definitely send it. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here, Max. Thank you. This has been another episode of Right Rising. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>